0: Before we get into there, let me pray again. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our heart, would please you this morning. And as Bill prayed, Lord, uh, before our service began, uh, Lord, help me speak in a way that fully glorifies you and Christ and what he's done for us. While honestly, clearly, and helpfully pointing out errors in teachings that others are promoting, both in our city, our country, and the world, Lord with the desire the goal that as these opening songs point out its Christ that matters and would you help us to see more of Jesus this morning and rely on him more fully father might the fruit of our time this morning be that we see more of your son Jesus and glory in him amen in my days as a home inspector on multiple occasions I found myself in houses that had a small statue of Saint Joseph in them Now, these were often empty houses so it stuck out that in an empty house there's a statue a little statue little almost always creamy white plastic statue of Saint Joseph usually in a window at the front of the house or on the mantelpiece now this occurred so often that I knew there's something going on here that I am unaware of. What is the deal? So I spoke to a realtor about it, and they cleared things up for me. Uh, The mystical powers of St. Joseph were being invoked by the presence of this statue by home sellers who were having difficulty selling their home. And they believed that by putting a statue of St. Joseph in their house, Joe would become a heavenly realtor and would bring in a buyer for them. That was the deal. And and this is pretty widely known. You can go to Snopes.com where I looked up information on this again this week. And I thought it was interesting too that probably for all the statues I saw, there were probably that many or more that I didn't see. Because apparently St. Joseph works better underground than he does above ground. So, the real question remained was, in what position does Joseph sell your house the fastest? So for instance, upside down near the for sale sign in the front yard, it's thought that he wants to get out of the upside down position and back onto your mantle, right side up, in the backyard, in the front yard. Uh, laid down on his back with his head towards your house like an arrow drawing people in to your property. Apparently, you've got to exercise some care also, though. One story went like this. They buried St. Joseph facing away from their house. Maybe like he's ready to welcome people in. But the house across the street that he was looking at was the one that sold, and it wasn't even on the market. So apparently, you've got to exercise some care on how you put Joseph to work. Now, you're laughing. That's great. I'm I'm glad you are. I I do too. So, what what moves otherwise hard-headed, thoughtful individuals to resort to what I would call a form of voodoo to sell their house? What's the deal with that? Why would you resort to a statue... uh, To get God to do something for you. You know, what's behind that? And and not only that for something that's easy to point out in the lives of others, but are there times and ways in which we are trying either to get God to answer a prayer, or somehow maybe even just feel closer to God, we feel distant? And so is there something we can do that will feel closer to him? Or maybe we're simply aware of one of those sins in our life and we're wondering, Lord, how how can I feel that my sins are forgiven and I'm close to you again? You know, to what lengths will we go to sort of implement a St. Joseph statue kind of means of drawing close to God or feeling close to him or having a sense that there's purpose in our life and God is with us and he's guiding us, you know, to what ends will we go? For instance, these were a few things I thought of. Uh, have you ever called that late-night Christian program to get your special prayer shawl? Because when you pray with that prayer shawl on, there's a greater chance God will hear you. If you haven't, I'm glad. If, if you have, but the appeal's out there. I mean, if you watch Christian TV, uh, I'm sorry. you know That's what's there. Or how about this? Have you ever sent in your donation to the TV evangelist what they call your seed faith, what businessmen call their profit margin, so that God will hear your prayer and then He'll respond to your seed faith, the money you gave them, and then you'll get the finances that you need. Do we resort to that? Are there thoughts or ways that are unbiblical, but sort of in our desperation or maybe just in our ignorance, these attempts to elicit from God something we need or to have a sense of forgiven sins a clear conscience or just have a sense of fellowship with God because we feel far away what do we do towards that end and are the things we do are the thoughts we entertain the practices we do are they biblical and at the end of the day do they lead us to Christ because that is the deal and in the passage will will look at this morning Paul is trying to lay low a series of arguments that heretical teachers in Colossae were trying to enjoin on these new Christians, these new primarily Gentile Christians. And the stuff they were suggesting really would just be things that would get in the way of them seeing Christ more fully and understanding more fully all that God had already provided for them. The substance they had in Christ, the real efficacy for the forgiveness of their sins, or or someone in heaven who really had their back, had their cause, and their good in mind, and was already working on their behalf. That's what Paul wants them to get to. Uh, let me say at the outset, uh, humor's a good thing, great thing. I don't want to be disrespectful this morning to anyone because uh, the stakes are too high. But I'm going to be talking about religious groups in this country and the world that, that still promote the heresies Paul is addressing this morning in Colossians 2. 2,000 years ago, you know, nothing really is new. Nothing new under the sun, stuff just gets recycled. So I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I do want to call a spade a spade and say this is that same thing. Same thing going on today. And I would say too, uh, when I go through this list of some of the things this morning... Uh, this may not apply to us. In fact, as I was preparing this teaching, it occurred to me most people at Lion and Lamb are not going to have issues with the things specifically that we cover this morning. You will have friends, you will have neighbors, and you will have relatives who follow the teachings Paul says this morning, don't follow. They are our friends. They're our classmates, they're our employers, they're fellow employees. They're here. This is still going on today. And I don't want to make fun of that. Real people with real needs looking for real answers and not yet having found those answers in Christ. And so we want to clear the rubble with Paul in our own lives and hopefully in others' lives as well so that we can see Christ, the substance instead of shadows. That's the the goal. Let me give you a real quick review. I'm going to skate through as quickly as I can here. Uh, Colossians 1 and 2 up through 2.15. It's been a month since we've been in this text, so I just want to make sure we start on the same page, the same point. Paul's writing this church. He's never been there. Hasn't visited them, but he's heard they're getting these teachings that are going to move them away from the substance that is Christ, the real reward and treasure they have in Christ, towards a kind of Jewish uh, mysticism. Probably the best way to describe it. And so in the text that we've already looked at coming this far, Paul's gone out of his way to make sure they know this is what's true of Christ. And if you have Christ, this is what's true of you before he starts smashing the idols of his day. So let's let's come up to speed on that. In chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul has already told us, Jesus is the image of God. If we see Jesus, we've seen deity, God. Nothing less than that. In verse 19, and again later in chapter 2, Jesus is the... Fullness of God. If you have Jesus, you have deity. You have God. Verse 16, Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 18, Jesus is the head of the church. He's also the firstborn of the resurrection life. Ultimately, we all want eternal resurrection life. Well, Jesus is the first of that flock, of that group. Verses 20 and 21, it's Jesus who has reconciled us back to the Father. And verse 27 there, Jesus is in Himself our hope of full future glory in resurrection. You move into chapter 2. It's the person of Jesus in which all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So if we need wisdom or knowledge, we go to Jesus. And of course, most fully, Jesus is revealed in His Word. But we don't have to go to outside sources for wisdom or knowledge. Paul says, no, if you've got Christ, you've got all the wisdom you'll ever need, all the knowledge you'll ever need. Verse eleven: There, in Jesus, we have not a partial and inadequate circumcision like the Jews practiced under the old covenant. But Paul said, "No, in Christ, in your union in Christ's death and resurrection, that's a circumcision that actually effectively cuts you off from your sinful self, that a Jewish partial circumcision never could." Verse thirteen: It's in Jesus that we've received new resurrection life. Verse fourteen: Jesus has removed every righteous charge against us. You remember the language there was God wrote our sins down, nailed them to Jesus' cross. Those were the penalties He died for so that your sins and mine, past, present, and future, Jesus has already atoned for in His death and resurrection. And last, verse 15, Jesus has conquered every angelic power opposed to God or us. The thought here was that if you seek help or if you're afraid of, an angelic figure, you need to understand Jesus has already conquered every angelic power. Jesus is above them. And that takes us to verse 16 of Colossians 2. I'll read from the ESV. You can follow along. So Paul continues, Therefore, in light of all these things, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are all Old Testament, Old Covenant, Jewish aspects of a religious life. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism, and that's a nice word for saying we treat our bodies harshly. Asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And this is Paul's description of those false teachers that he's contradicting here. Verse 19, Instead of holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body, and that would be the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. This is language very similar to Ephesians 4, you'll probably recognize that's a parallel epistle. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, "...and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh." Paul starts out here by saying, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass judgment on you. He's already told us there in the verses that preceded 16 that your sins are already covered and forgiven in Christ, in His death and resurrection. So the thought is, you stand in perfect holiness before God. And if God, the holy God, says you're holy and without flaw, then why would you accept recriminations from a mere mortal? Why would you let anyone else pass judgment on you? If God says we're good to go, then we're good to go. And don't let someone else come in and tell you as a Christian, as a Christ follower, that you still somehow lack. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you because you're forgiven. You're in right standing through Christ right now in the presence of God. So... For that reason, don't let others pass judgment on you. But also, he says, don't let others pass judgment on you because they're trying to take you back to a form of Judaism, something that is, for practical purposes, it's dead and gone. Christ is the substance, Paul says, and the past, the Jewish law, the old covenant that Jews lived under before Jesus' death and resurrection, that's a shadow. It's a shadow, but there's no substance there. Verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come, referring to the things the heretics are trying to get them to do. Observe Jewish laws. In Hebrews, you've got two verses there on your study sheet. They say this same language. Hebrews 8, verse 5 talks about the Jewish priesthood. Hebrews 10, verse 1 says the law was a shadow of the good things to come. You see, it's not that there was anything wrong with the law. We won't get into all the theology here. But when Christ came, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. So if we've got Christ, we don't need to go back to the law. That's a shadow. And in the book of Hebrews, the whole thing is written to Jews to tell them Jesus is better than anything and everything you had under the Jewish law. And it's not that God hadn't spoken in the old covenant in those days those dietary laws and days to observe. That was God's Word. And when Hebrews opens up, it says, God did speak in times past in various ways and sometimes through angels too. But Hebrews says, but now He's spoken in or through His Son. And so it's the Word of the Son that sort of occludes. It's the substance that occludes every shadow that preceded it. So Paul's saying, don't hang on to those shadows Because the substance is here now and the substance is Christ. Now they're they're telling them the the shadows here are Jewish laws. So in verse 16, they're being told don't eat certain foods and don't drink certain things. Do you know if you were a Jew living under the law, you could eat a good steak, for instance. Because a steak came from a cow. And a cow chewed its cud and it had a split hoof. And the law said if you're going to eat an animal, it needs to chew its cud and have a split hoof. So goats, lambs, cattle are fine. Pigs are not. Why? Well, they have a split hoof, but they don't chew their cud. So you can't eat a pig. So the ceremonial law said clean and unclean animals. Don't eat the unclean animals. Seafood, it's got to have fins and scales. If it doesn't, you don't eat it. So no lobster, no shrimp. No shellfish. That was the clean and unclean animals or dietary laws according to the covenant. So that's what the Jews lived under. So these guys are telling them don't eat certain foods. Don't drink certain things. If, if you were under a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament either because you chose to be or because your parents put you under one, you couldn't drink certain things. You couldn't drink wines. Anything that came from a grape. Grape juice, wine, strong drink. That was forbidden. So these people are saying, you need to go back to the rules of the Old Testament and not eat certain foods and not drink certain things. Go back to the dietary law. They were also telling them, verse 16, what they must do. Observe certain days. Now again, if you were a Jew, your calendar year was punctuated by God's Word, by seven particular days of celebration, by new moon celebrations in which the first of each month certain sacrifices had to be made, and by a weekly Sabbath day, Sabbath observance. So they're saying on one hand, don't eat foods according to the Jewish law, and do observe the Jewish calendar days also. Verse 20 and 21, later when Paul goes down, he asks, why are you guys submitting to these regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Why are you going back to this? Why are you listening to these guys that are telling you Gentiles to live like Jews under a covenant that Christ has already replaced with a new one? Now by this time, you know the development of Christianity in the early days of the church, it was messy, and the early church didn't know what to make of the New Covenant. And they didn't know. Do we keep the law still? Do Gentiles keep the law? Do Gentiles have to become Jews? So there was a lot of lack of clarity early on and the early church fought with that. They came to grips with those things. By this time, these things have already been settled. The early church has no ambiguity on these things. In Mark 7, when Jesus is responding to a question about why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat because we think that means they're ceremonially unclean. And Jesus responded he said, it's not what we put in our mouth that defiles us before God. No, it's what comes out of our heart. And then parenthetically in that text, we're told He declared all foods clean when He said this. That's Mark's Gospel. and Mark's Gospel, we understand Peter's the author and Mark's the one that wrote it down. They understood when the Gospel was recorded. All foods are clean. Acts 10 and 11 is the vision Peter gets in which God drops a sheet in front of him filled with unclean, animals and says to him, Peter, rise, kill and eat. Pete's like, Lord, no way. You know, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And God says, what I declare clean, don't you say is unclean. And this applied both to food, and as Peter would soon find out, it also applied to people, to Gentiles, because God's going to send Peter to a Gentile house Peter otherwise would not have entered because he understood Cornelius the Gentile would have rendered him unclean according to the Jewish law, but not now. Foods are clean, Gentiles are clean. Acts 15 also, uh, anyone that promotes any kind of Jewish law-keeping, Acts 15, the early church centered in Jerusalem is faced with the question, Gentiles are wondering what they have to do to be faithful followers of Christ. What do we tell them? And so the apostles and the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, they write a letter. And they tell them just a few things the Jewish Christians, the church centered in Jerusalem, does not require any Jewish law-keeping on the Gentiles. If there was a time in which elements of Judaism were going to be included for the church, generally and for Gentiles specifically, it would have been here in Acts 15. But when the letter is written, no law-keeping is enjoined on the Gentiles. And they're understood to be fully included in the body of Christ. So if we were going to have any of this kept under the new covenant, this would have been the place to keep it. It's simply absent. It's not there. Also, last Acts 20, verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 16, 2, the early church was meeting on Sundays already, not the Sabbath. The early church did not keep Sabbath. Now, when you talk to people today, friends, relatives, neighbors, who have some version of Jewish law-keeping, and maybe we think it's funny, or we can't believe they believe that, or we wonder what's going on. I do want to point out that from 1 Timothy 4, there is spiritual power behind belief systems. You know, I marvel sometimes when I think of the, the irrational hatred within Islam by the Islamic terrorists. Why do they hate Jews and Christians that much i mean it's self-destructive so what's behind that kind of a hatred well there's a spiritual energy behind that kind of a hatred and paul talks about that here and when we look at people that we think they're intelligent they're rational but they believe this stuff they follow those rules and regulations and we we struggle what gives well there's spiritual power behind those teachings it's not just you know, we're more than uh, mere mortals. We're spiritual beings and we're subject to spiritual powers. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, the Spirit expressly says, so Paul here is speaking as a prophet, the Holy Spirit has told me that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons or doctrines of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, they'll forbid marriage. They'll require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So if you see someone who's following a religious system or belief that you're just incredulous over, how can they actually believe that? This isn't something to uh, laugh at them about. This is pitiable because there are spiritual powers that are at work to deceive us. And there's spiritual energy behind false teachings. Now again, I don't think most of us in this room this morning struggle with the specific things Paul's bringing up here. But I almost guarantee that you know people who fall subject to these things. So for instance... Let me start with Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, Adventists still hold to the Jewish requirements on food as far as clean and unclean foods on animals. Most Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. And by the way, as a group, they tend to be healthy. study in Southern California says they live about 10 years longer than their Southern California peers, and they're quick to point that out. In fact, Adventism around the world... And it has a huge presence around the world. Adventism is promoted generally through a call to healthy living. And they eat well. And they generally have good health. And that's all good. What they don't usually say on the front end of things is they're following the Jewish law about clean and unclean animals, not just an appeal to a healthy lifestyle. They are still subject to the law that Jesus obliterated through His death and resurrection. Related to the Sabbath, Adventism's fundamental belief number 20 says the fourth commandment of God's unchangeable law requires the observance of this seventh day Sabbath. Adventists, and this is strange, but most groups, if they want to broadly be considered under the umbrella of Christian, will say we're Christian, on one hand, while distinguishing the things that they believe the rest of the evangelical church is all wrong on. And for Adventists, this thing of Sabbath-keeping is so significant, they believe that if you keep Sunday in the future, we would call it the tribulation era, if you keep Sunday observance as your form of worship, that is the sign of the beast, and you're going to hell. You don't belong to Christ. Because Christ's true followers keep Sabbath. And it's for that reason they'll be persecuted. So Adventists today are doing exactly what Paul told the early church don't do. They're following dietary laws and they're still seeing Sabbath keeping as essential for Christian faith. I think on your study sheet there's a couple of websites you can go to for more information on that. I heard from a relative in the last several months. I'd sort of forgotten about this group, but the Worldwide Church of God sort of fell apart when Herbert Armstrong died but it's resurging, and it's resurging on multiple fronts. You can see their programs every Sunday morning here broadcast locally. They have a huge presence online on the website. And my relative was, was telling me how obvious it was that we should be keeping Sabbath and we should be keeping Jewish holidays. The same thing is going on today through followers of what's called the Worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong. So these things are still going on. Dietary laws and Sabbath-keeping This isn't just 2,000 years ago. This is today. So let no one pass judgment on you, Paul says. He also says, let no one disqualify you. And he brings up asceticism, angels, and visions there in verse 18. The term for disqualified means you accept someone else's ruling against you. It's really like an umpire has called you out at first base. I say I'm safe. He says I'm out. Who's right? Well, here Paul's saying... Don't let someone else act as an umpire and call you out when you're really safe. Don't accept their judgment against your faith in Christ telling you've got to have faith in Christ plus something else. Most of us aren't going to find difficulty with these things, especially asceticism. I mean, look at most of our waste. We don't have a problem with harsh treatment of the body, at least on, on our calorie count, do we? But this still goes on today for sure. Asceticism, rigorous self-denial, extreme abstinence, and austerity. Roman Catholic monasteries are based on a lifestyle of asceticism and it's as a means to draw near to God. This is true historically, it's true today as well. There are monasteries in the United States and all around the world today that still practice asceticism as a form of drawing near to God. Now this doesn't mean that we can't have and shouldn't have times of fasting and special prayer, but it's not that we treat our body harshly, we deny ourselves, and that that somehow gives us greater acceptance before God. It doesn't, Paul says. Again, because our acceptance is in Christ. We can't get closer to God because God, in Christ, by the Spirit, is in us. We're His temple, so we can't get any closer to Him. So harsh treatment of our body can't get us any closer to God. won't work. That's still being practiced today. Uh, The worship of angels. Uh, Do you know a Mormon? Does anyone here know a Mormon? Have a Mormon as a teacher or a good friend? You know, and by the way, let me be quick to add here, there are short-term benefits oftentimes to belong in a group, a religious group that has sort of uh, rules and conduct and standards that we say this is what we aspire to and And Mormons oftentimes uh, tend to aspire highly and and they're very successful and respectful and, and things that I'd say, great. And Roman Catholics, absolutely. And also, I am not saying that you can't be a Roman Catholic or an Adventist and be a Christian. I am saying that what these groups promote is oftentimes heretical and it's to be avoided. And not only do we not want to embrace it, But God may want to use us to helpfully, charitably, graciously speak into the lives of others that Christ is the substance and those things are shadows. Okay, so I know some Roman Catholic Christians, okay? I was one early on. Uh, So please be careful what I'm not saying about these things. It's the teachings that we're addressing here this morning. So Mormonism is a religion based on Joseph Smith's account of visitations by an angel, Moroni. And the angel Moroni shows him where to dig up these golden tablets and translate them out, and that's the book of Mormon. Mormonism is based on what Paul said don't pay attention to. An angelic visitation. Paul says, no, don't go there. Roman Catholicism again revolves around the use of intercessors. That, those could be angels... Uh, those could be people the church calls saints. That could be uh, Mary. But it's the thought that angels and others may be able to get us closer to God or get prayers answered that God's not answering for us otherwise. So, worship of angels. Paul says, don't go there. Don't base your faith. Don't be disqualified by the substance you have in Christ because others are preaching shadows through claims of vision. Or angels. Related to visions, Roman Catholics worship at shrines around the world where there have been reputed visions of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Think of Majagore, Fatima, Lourdes, Guadalupe. Those are the ones that I know of offhand. I was at the website MajagoreUSA.org this last week and was slightly chagrined to realize that Mary is still speaking today. Because this was Our Lady's message for May 25, 2013. Dear children, today I call you to be strong and resolute in faith and prayer until your prayers are so strong so as to open the heart of my beloved Son, Jesus. So you, you understand, Mary's heart is open. She's available. Jesus is not. But if you pray long enough, strong enough, well enough, Jesus' heart will open to you. And then you'll be accepted. Then your prayers will be answered. Visions of Mary. Seventh-day Adventists also follow a religion that's founded on one woman's claim of visions. Adventism is founded on Ellen White and her claims of visions. And in visions, she says, she traveled to other planets and galaxies. She traveled to the distant past and the distant future. And it's on those claims of visions that Adventism is founded. As someone had pointed out to me, Ellen White had a significant head injury at one point, And they said, seriously, her vision started after her head injury. And they weren't making fun. They were saying, you know, we wonder if something got knocked loose. She had an injury that precipitated some of this. That may or may not be part of the case for sure, there is demonic energy and agency at work in those teachings and through those visions, if you will. We don't need to practice an ascetic lifestyle. No doubt, many of us, perhaps most of us, could eat healthier, be healthier. Sure, that's not asceticism. We don't need to practice an ascetic lifestyle. We don't need angelic intermediaries to reach God's throne. We don't need visions and revelations to have the mind of Christ. We have all that right now. Paul's already said because we have Christ, Christ is our sufficiency and the truth of His Word is our sufficiency to convey all that we already have in Christ. Paul says do not pay attention. Let no one judge you about these things. Let no one disqualify you. Verse 23, Paul talks about self-made religion Self-made there means the religion these guys are promoting, it's what they've come up with. It's not what God's come up with. And you know, if we're going to follow somebody else's version of religion, I think I could do as well as they do. That's like, do you like chocolate or vanilla? Well, I like chocolate. So I'll have my chocolate religion, you'll have your vanilla religion. We'll choose our own. Because it's self-regulated. It's what I've come up with. So a little bit of Judaism, a little paganism, a little Christianity sounds good to me. And that's my self-made religion. You know, as Americans, we're independent. We like to pick and choose. I'll take this of that. And I'll take a little of this. I'll shake it together and I'll come up with my own brand and I'll call that truth. You know, it's crazy. Don't bother, Paul says, with self-made religion. We've got something better than that. He says self-made religion has an appearance of wisdom. Guys, you know that by our very nature, by the very scheme of things, men are inherently religious. And I know people claim the new atheism today. You know, historically, this is just a non-starter. Atheism is not something that the, Bible, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You know, we're sort of rejecting all logic and sort of all obvious truth if we say there's no God. We're religious by nature. So if one, someone comes up and they preach a religion to us, there's a sense in which we're ready for that. Paul says the things they're saying have an appearance of wisdom. Because it's religious and because we're wired to be, we wouldn't say religious today, but we're wired for something bigger than ourselves. We know that that's spiritual. Ultimately, that's God. But Paul says there's an appearance and there's an appearance of wisdom in these because we're religious and because all religions ultimately end up based on what we do. What you and I bring to the plate. Religion is always about our efforts to reach God, what God requires us to do. So, Paul says in what they're saying, there is an appearance of wisdom in the religion they're pressing on you. Again, I think for us, most of us aren't going to have a problem with dietary laws and days and people who are promoting a religion based on visions and angelic messengers. Probably not. But guys, I think we need to be aware of more subtle forms of the same thing because these all amount to the same thing. If I live a life in which performance determines my acceptability of God, I'm living religion, not faith in Christ. If my acceptance before God is based on my performance, that's religion. That's not faith in Christ. If I look to myself and my abilities to live up to some self-imposed standard, that's religion, that's not faith, that's not life in Christ. And I think that's where most of us are, by the way. You know, when we struggle for peace or joy, or, you know, I've always got to do better, or I'm always down on myself, or it's, it's never good enough, that's religion. That's not Christianity. So faith is what God in Christ has done for us. And so in these more subtle ways... Probably most of us here, no trouble with the law. But there's a self imposed law that we try to rise to. Because if I can live this well, if I can keep these rules in my heart, then I feel okay about myself. But we've rejected the message of the gospel on the front end of that. The gospel is we're sinful, and we'll always be sinful. And God has crucified the people that we were in Christ and said, You'll never be good. You'll never be better. So I'm doing away with that, and I'm starting new. And now, in my son, you're perfect. You'll always be perfect. You'll never be less than perfect. But I think for evangelical Christians, we may not fall back to resorting to the law, but I think we often live as legalists, even just in our own mind. And if you find that you feel better or worse about yourself based on your performance... That's an indicator that you're living a religious lifestyle, not a faith-filled lifestyle. When I see sin in my life, I shouldn't be surprised. And I should just be willing to say, Lord, there it is again. Thank you that I've been crucified in Christ, that my sins are atoned for, that I'm a new creation in Christ, and that I'm free to move forward. And that's what I'm doing now. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We sin... And sometimes we feel like we're still doing atonement for our sins. If I feel bad enough, long enough, then that'll be good. If you confess your sins to God, they're forgiven. And they're already forgiven, but our relationship is restored. So if you find yourself doing things like this, I've got to feel bad enough, long enough. That is not Christianity. That's, that's uh, if you will, shadows of the shadows. That's Paul's talking about here this morning. Don't fall into that hole. Religion is a dead pursuit. Lion Lamb mission statement says in part this, we are committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. That is our pursuit. We don't want to be religious. We may fall into that hole on occasion. If we do, you say something. That's not where we want to head. We want to authentically pursue... A vital, a lively, a real, a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we want. Life's in Christ. That's where we want to go. And then out of that, we want to obey all His commands. It's not that we're living a licentious lifestyle. In fact, when you get into Colossians 3, Paul says, the things those guys told you not to do, don't worry about. Those aren't sins. But in chapter 3, he says, but these are sins. And don't do these. So we're not mistaking those two. But here he says what they're trying to push on you, leave it. That's not the faith. But we do want to obey. But the obedience is out of faith. A Christian's life is meant to be a thank you to God. That obedience is God thank you for what you've done for me in Christ. Thank you that my sins are forgiven. And that I have a glorious future and I have your presence now by your spirit. And I have the truth that sets me free. We don't want to settle for some subtler version of what are obvious errors that others follow. We may be doing the same thing on a different level. Let me wind down. I always run long, guys. You know, I always love what I have to say. You know, and hope half of it makes sense. And you know, I watch my watch. I'm, I'm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Paul says at the end too in that verse he says these things this religious rule keeping there's no value in it to stopping your sinful desires and mind do you know religion can never keep you from sin your willpower will never keep you from sin you may not do something but you'll be proud about it the focus is always wrong so self-made religion and the rules keeping it has no power to save me from my sinful practices It's a new creation. That's what we have in Christ. Shadows and substances. uh, We used to have a cat named Cleopatra. She was black and white. She was a lot of fun. Great cat. cat. We discovered something one day which was this. Sitting at the dining room table having lunch and the sun shining through the window and shining off my watch. And there's this uh, reflection on the floor. And then depending on how I'm moving, it's on the wall. And Cleo sees that reflection. And she comes over. And she's trying to catch it, of course. And we've got fun written all over this, right? So whether it's Dad or the kids or Kathy, the spoons, anything shiny works, you know, at this time of day. So we have fun with Cleo. and, And Cleo's good with it too, right? She's having a ball. She's chasing the reflection. And we're watching her, enjoying the whole thing. But you know what? She'll never catch that reflection. There's nothing to catch, right? It's a reflection. There's no substance. There's no reality. That's what Paul's talking about here. When we pursue a rules-keeping life, we're pursuing shadows and reflections. There's no substance. Paul says, clear away the debris because the substance is Christ Himself. Uh, Three things. Uh, Because we know people. Guys, we know people who are in these groups who are praying to people who can't save them and who are hoping that angels are going to intervene and who are following teachings that are based on maybe head injuries and somebody's claim of visions and demonic agency. Seriously, uh, what can we do? to benefit them. The first is to live a joy-filled, Christ-centered life ourselves. If we're sour, dour Christians, we have nothing to offer the world. The world's got plenty of that already. You know, when we live a life focused on Christ, Christ is our life, we have peace and joy. And we have a life that others find appealing. It's attractive. Live that kind of life first. The second is, take the opportunities to celebrate Christ with others, and I don't mean this in a super-religious way, super spiritual way at all. I just mean talking freely about the realities we have in Christ and what I read in my Bible and what I'm excited about what God's doing with everybody that I interact with. Be real with your faith with others. And the last one is to gently ask, and I mean this, gently, respectfully ask, how they reconcile passages like Colossians 2 with their religious practices. What do you do when God's Word says this? What do you do with that? If you arrived at my house destitute and starving and I welcomed you into my house and I brought you to my dining room table and I offered you the choice of sitting at one of two places and at one place there's a nice table setting and there's a picture taken out of a food magazine. It's a lovely picture and it's got a sumptuous meal on it, whatever insert, whatever you like, seafood or steaks or whatever. Sumptuous picture of that meal that's at one table setting. And at the other table setting, the aroma of that ribs or the prime rib or the steak that's just come off the grill and whatever veggies you like, whatever version of a feast is to you, it's on the other plate. Which do you choose? Is this hard? Do do you want pictures, shadows, reflections or do you want substance? Do you want to go away empty or do you want to go away filled and satisfied? And whether it's Other groups pushing Judaism, mystic or otherwise, or guys, whether it's just our own drawing back to a kind of religious rules keeping, it's shadows, it's reflections, and it's empty. And the substance is Christ. And that's who and that's what we want. And Father, we appeal to you to open our eyes to see your Son more fully. God, we are so dumb and we are so slow. And we are still fraught with so much of our sinful, deficient thinking and ways of acting, and we need your help. And God in heaven, thanks that our sins are fully covered in Christ's atoning sacrifice. And thanks that the God of heaven and earth, the God who spoke the worlds into existence, Christ is in us, and that's our hope, Lord, not only of future glory, but of peace and joy and satisfaction now. God, would you fill us up with more of Jesus and would you overflow us to the benefit of those around us? Amen.